various kitchen tables around the world, this is F1 Nation. This week, David Coulthard's handy guide to winning the Monaco Grand Prix. We answer your questions in the mailbag. Rosanna Tennant challenges Johnny Herbert to sing for us. An F1 journalist for over 40 years, Morris Hamilton reflects on the greatness of Nicky Lauda. Now, wherever in the world you are, this is F1 Nation. Yes, a very warm welcome to F1 Nation. My name's Tom Clarkson. And I'm Alex Jakes. And this is your place for lots of F1 chat and some great guests. But before we get going, let's talk about our highlights from this week, Jakesy. And I think for me, it's all about how these drivers are letting us in on their lives. And I'm, th- I'm thinking specifically about the Heineken Legends Challenge when Nico Rosberg's at home and suddenly his wife Vivian comes into back of shot. Oh, you're, not, you're not the life of global, global 100 million people. If there are 100 million people, I'm really nervous. Uh, uh, there was 100 million people watching me live. I think pre-lockdown, we'd never seen this side of the drivers before and I'm just completely loving it. So that, quite simply, is my highlight, just the access we're getting now. How about you? I think the clip that a lot of people will have seen on a similar theme was... Charlotte Claire's girlfriend. So my girlfriend had to subscribe to my Twitch channel to, to tell me that I had to open the door. So I gained a subscription. I'm so happy. That little cabal of drivers have been broadcasting every hour of the day, more or less, uh, across the last few weeks of lockdown. And there was one point where Charles was explaining that he wasn't going to be able to broadcast. And I want to play you this. This is my highlight from, uh, it might be from a couple of weeks ago, but I found this the other day. This is Charles explaining that he can't broadcast and one fan's request. So I'll be driving on the road in France. 1,200 kilometers. This is going to be boring. Anyway, stream the drive. Yeah, sure. Stream the drive. I mean, it's gone the other way, Tom. It's gone from only hearing sound bites from them on a Thursday and clipped media controlled answers to stream every hour of your life so (laughs) I may watch. Jake, it is extraordinary, isn't it? Well, this week, despite there not being a race there in 2020, we're still off to Monaco. Monaco is unique. For the tiny principality nestling on the Mediterranean join of France and Italy, yearly presents a motor racing extravaganza of unrivaled opulence with its spectacular circuit. Monaco, the jewel in the crown. And anyone who has been to this race, I think would find it hard to disagree with that description because it blows every sense in your body to watch Formula One cars around this wonderful racetrack. I remember my first trip to Monaco was 1996. I was actually there to report on the support race, the Formula Three race, and a guy called Jarno Trulli was on pole, actually. But I obviously saw the race while I was there. It was that fabulous one that Olivier Panis won. It was wet, dry. But just to see those cars, particularly going through the swimming pool and all of, you know, not an inch to spare. And that made such a lasting impression on me. And then Jakesy, after that, you know, I love seeing Juan Pablo Montoya's victory in 2003, Williams's only victory in Monaco. Equally to see a chum like Mark Webber do the business in 2010 that was good as well but there's nothing that quite beats the first time 
that you see a Formula One car in Monaco. Can you remember your first time? It's 2015, and this is a race that everyone speaks about, like you just did in glowing terms. So if you grow up watching motor racing and every single journalist, every single broadcaster tells you that Monaco is the one to go to, when you actually get the chance to do it, you're buzzing to go. We're driven down the coast. It's all stunning scenery. And then we end up in a car park, right, which is where the Formula One pictures were produced from for years. So my first memory of Monaco is the bewilderment of the broadcast set up in this car park, but then walking through the tunnel, the chicane, harborside, to back, swimming pool. There's something about that swimming pool section. You don't believe what you're seeing the first time that happens. For me, it was Max Verstappen going through in the Toro Rosso. I had my nose on the fence for, I would say, 30 seconds before the marshal eased me back from my nose on the fence and that you never forget that the first time you see that direction change because it's an iconic shot on television and when you feel the full force of it in real life it is it's extraordinary so let's get a driver's perspective on monaco now and who better to get it from than a man who's won the monaco grand prix two times and who's lived there for the past 25 years david coulthard it's lovely to have you on the show how are you I'm good, thanks, Tom. Um, we can actually see each other, even though this is audio only. So I see you've had a fairly radical haircut there. Yes, <laughs> that is my 12-year-old daughter, DC, at her finest. Mind you, you, you have clearly had a haircut as well, if we're going to talk about haircuts. Who has cut yours? I've gone for a bit of a trim, but more importantly, I've had the colour done. So it's taken about six months off. And I was sporting a bit of a Santa Claus beard during the main part of the lockdown, which has now gone and I've just got a bit of white stubble. So, you know, I'm, I'm sort of gradually working my way back towards full production trim, <laughs> which will make me look 48 and a half rather than 49 and a half. Now, DC, we were meant to be racing in Monaco this weekend. Obviously, we're not. What is actually going on in the Principality at the moment? Well, things are coming back to what you would call normality in as much that those that can go to their offices are people that were on a, a curfew of not being out after 10 o'clock and only going out nearby for essential exercise. All of that has, has now changed. Restaurants and bars are not open other than for deliveries. Quite interesting to get a vodka martini delivered from the Hermitage bar. The, the, the olive tends to have gone a bit soft but delivered it down. No, I haven't done that. Of course I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk racing. What is your favourite Monaco memory? I first came here in 1992. I had just moved into Formula 3000, but I had a Japanese sponsor that sponsored the Formula 3 car for Paul Stewart Racing in Fuji at the end of 1991, just after I won the Macau Grand Prix, just in case anyone forgets that I used to be reasonably good and uh, sadly only finished second in Fuji. But uh, she decided she wanted to go to the, the Monaco Grand Prix and decided that I was the fountain of all knowledge when it came to motor racing. Clearly, I knew nothing about Monaco or Formula One, but I watched it at the Lowe's hairpin. That was my first memory, and that's, I think, the year that Mansell, he hounded Senna towards the finish. Is that right? You're more the sat man than me, but he, he had to pit for a puncture or something, and what should have been an easy victory. Uh, Ayrton made his car as wide as possible, and he won the race. Never actually came here as a driver until 1995 in the Williams. And talk about eye-opening experiences. And I don't know if either of you can remember the first big moment of your careers where 
you were doing what you thought you were reasonably good at, but suddenly feeling like you'd never done it before because driving a Grand Prix car around Monaco for the very first time, I came here thinking, well, I've won Macau. I'm pretty good on street circuits. This shouldn't be a problem. I think I was 18th on the first day of practice in Williams, and I'm pretty sure Damon was first or second. You have Friday to fall into an even deeper depression of, I, I can't drive, I don't know how I'm ever going to manage this. But looking at data, walking the circuit, getting your head around the uh, attack on your senses. By the time Saturday qualifying came around, I qualified third. Uh, so a little bit back into my you know, confidence zone. But yeah, that was, that was a hell of a first Grand Prix. Well, David, you, you went on to win the race twice. So how did you build up the speed year by year? What's the secret to being fast around the circuit? Well, I always felt comfortable in street circuits because the limit was clearly defined by a metal barrier. There's no sort of interpretation of, well, can I cut that curb? Can I, at the top of Eau Rouge, put the car more over the curb? Because back when, when I was first discovering places like that in a Grand Prix car, a bad decision could end up in a huge, huge crash if you tried to you know, experiment with taking Eau Rouge flat for the first time and then open yeah. the steering if it wasn't feeling like it was going to work for you. You, you didn't know what the car was going to do if you ran off into the, the curb until you got there. And, and experiencing anything for the first time at 160 miles an hour is a little bit like putting all your, you know, all your assets on, on the roll of a dice in the casino. You know, it's heavily weighted to the unknown. But the great thing about street circuits is you, you, you see the barrier, it doesn't move. And that defines where the apex is. And the exit is defined by another barrier. And you just build up confidence, a little bit of Vaseline on the sidewalls, and you're good. Off you go. That's a huge challenge for, for any driver. Was another challenge avoiding the partying on a Thursday night? I was never really into the, the social scene as a youngster. I wasn't really a drinker. It wasn't really until I got into the guts of my Grand Prix career that I discovered <laughs> the choice of, of having a party. And so it was still early enough in my career that I was, I was a bit shy to begin with. I didn't really find my confidence until I was over 26, 27. DC, can we talk a bit of news as well while we've got you? Driver moves for the last week, specifically Sebastian Vettel. What do you think he's going to do? Retire? Mercedes? Renault? What's your gut feeling? Well, my gut feeling was when they announced Charles Leclerc on a multi-year contract earlier in the year, and at the same time, you know, pretty much Max had committed to, to Red Bull, the market was already starting to take a shape. And that was always going to put a pressure, a spotlight on Sebastian, because as great as his results are, past performance is no guarantee of future success. Your investment advisor will tell you that in the small print and whisper it to you as he leaves, because no one ever wants to freak you out in terms of performance. But it doesn't matter what you've achieved in the past. The respect is there for Sebastian. He's been a great asset to Formula One, unbelievable turn of speeds at a period of his career and still somebody that's capable of winning races and championships, I don't doubt. But the negotiating wheel has gone against him for whatever reason. Now, if that was about status and money and he wants to race, then he's made a mistake because he now only has Mercedes as a reasonably safe bet of performance before then getting into the unknown of Renault or you know, does he go to Aston Martin, take a shareholding and you know, take another phase of his career, which isn't, could be an option, could be something you know, a bit, bit left field. 
uh, that no do, one's do you really think that's about. realistic? Sorry to interrupt, but do you think him going to Aston Martin is realistic? I, I don't know, Tom. You know, I used to take the view that if you could imagine it in Formula One, it was possible. So if somebody during my career had come to me and said that uh, Bernie Eccleston's bought Ferrari and he's put himself in as number one driver, it could happen. You know, it, it, it would have been extremely unlikely, but never bet against anything in, in this industry. Only Sebastian knows whether he's already decided he's retiring or he is being courted by Mercedes as a serious option in the negotiation with Lewis, because as much as they love Lewis, Mercedes and Toto, they're business people, they're not charities. It's not, Lewis, we love you so much, here's a blank check, write the number in, then we'll, we'll work out how we manage to pay you that. They'll want to pay him the minimum they can to allow more money to invest in their business. And he'll, of course, want the maximum. Now, money is only one part of the negotiation. There'll be other things. Uh, right now, Seb has, uh, has to be in a position where he's, he's re-evaluating his negotiating demands because you know, our Renault with the failed experiment in paying a large amount of money to Daniel, are they able to sell that into the board that we, they should pay another large amount of money to someone that's effectively been released from Ferrari. You know, there's so many interesting things that will come into play. And one of them could well be Lauren Stroll has got big designs of future success for Aston Martin. At this stage of, of his career, he could well be a brilliant asset to a team like that in terms of knowledge and experience of Red Bull, knowledge and experience of Ferrari. You know, like I had my sort of four years with Red Bull before eventually hanging up the Nomex. I wondered what that rash was in, in my last year. It, was, it took me a while to work out I was allergic to Nomex, but once I'd worked it out, it was quite easy to retire. It happens to everyone at some point. It's just a question of whether they acknowledge it, accept it, or stay in denial. And isn't it crazy to think that if Sebastian doesn't do a deal for 2021, there will be no German drivers on the grid? DC, just imagine how much easier your career would have been if there'd been no German drivers on the grid back then. Yeah, but my desire when I left the village was to compete against the best drivers in the world and find out where I fitted in. And I feel much more comfortable looking at you knowing that I competed against statistically the best driver in the history of the sport and wasn't quite as good as him and finished second to him. You know, I can live with that. Where if I had won a world championship in a dominant car with a weak teammate, the way I'm wired, I wouldn't feel proud of that. Sport is about exceptional. And I want to celebrate exceptional sports, men and women, whether it's in tennis, whether it's in football, whether it's in boxing, whether it's in motor racing. Just personally, I'd rather accept my place in, in having tried my best and, and look to the exceptionals to be the inspiration, the ones that are our, our teachers for the future and the benchmarks for the future. Speaking of German world champions and, and excellence, we had the eSports at the weekend. Now, were you getting revenge for Mr. Nico Rosberg taking you out in your final Grand Prix? Or was it just uh, getting up to speed? Well, unfortunately, what I've realized is I could never be a career criminal or even an amateur criminal because I declared my intent <laughs> long before. <laughs> I remember my wife said to me, do you, do you think you should really be tweeting that you hope to take him out? And it was at that point I tried to play it cool and realized that my juvenile uh, enthusiasm had got the better of me. But I'm not a natural gamer, it's fair to say. In all reality, I respect anyone and everyone that puts work effort into whatever it is. And if you're putting work effort into hours of gaming and reaching the level of those professional gamers, 
that that deserves respect and it deserves acknowledgement. And there's no question that lockdown has helped with a spotlight. I had the, all the assists on. If they could have given me steering assist, I would have had that as well. But sadly, I did have to actually turn left and right. But I did manage to crash into Nico twice. So as far as I'm concerned, he was taking it a lot more seriously than I was. Therefore, mission accomplished. DC, it's been wonderful to catch up. Well, TC, great to hear from DC. I thought quite rare for him to explain how difficult it is to get up to speed as a rookie driver around the Principality. Yeah, he was very eloquent about that, wasn't he? But actually, that is one of DC's great strengths now as a communicator, I think, is that, I mean, I think he's often too modest, but actually he really is very good at explaining the driver's eye view and the respect it demands and how difficult it is. And it's not only DC who's found it difficult. I remember Jacques Villeneuve, went there with the best car on the grid in 1996-1997 and was, I mean, sorry, Jack, but it really wasn't good for those two years. So it is really, really hard. And DC spoke about that very well. Yeah, you're right. Great to have him on the show too. So time to point you in the direction of a few things happening across F1 channels this weekend, starting with the classic F1 Rewind, which is all the way back in 2018. But it's a race that's well worth your time because, Tom, this was the Monaco Grand Prix where Daniel Ricciardo was able to battle a car problem and take his one and so far only win in the Principality. Well, and you remember two years before that, he'd lost the race in the pits. So there was so much at stake and um, we just want people to watch. I don't want to give it all away if you haven't seen it. <laughs> Every week we flag up what the classic race is and then we go, but you don't need to watch because here's what happened. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, here's an event that we can't give you any spoilers for. It's the Virtual Grand Prix this weekend. Uh, we've also got the Pro Esports drivers and Formula 2 as well. We have Valtteri Bottas and Esteban Ocon making their esports debut. And we have two Leclercs driving for Ferrari around the streets of Monaco. That is all coming your way on Sunday. Now, for the very first time, it's time to hear from you, the F1 Nation. Let's get stuck into the mailbag. And joining us now, we have our very own postmistress, Rosanna Tennant. I feel like some sort of summer Father Christmas hauling up the mailbag, and there are lots of lovely comments in here. You sound surprised. Well... (laughs) (laughs) Comment number one. (laughs) Well, let's start with Simone Peer, who says, F1 Nation podcast has got great content and guests quite moving the interview with Jackie Stewart in particular great stuff looking forward for this new season of Formula One and the new episodes of the podcast thanks Simone Rosanna what does the next one say Ashley's been in touch saying another cracking pod from Tom and Alex loved the first episodes and this one has the likes of Sir Jackie and Alan Prost no less plenty to munch over there and our friends at the Haas Formula One team did a little bit of promotion for us and called it Leisurely Listening. Would we describe this podcast as Leisurely Listening, guys? I hope it's not hard work. Che182, they've said really good episode, want to hear more from DT. I've seen him in lots of F1 docs and he's got very interesting views and he's not shy on sharing them. Get him back. Guys, you're going to have to get in touch with DT. We're not just going to read out the praise on the mailbag. Oh, no, we're not, we're not that sort of podcast. Because Julie Wan has said, can you explain how this is different to the other podcast called Beyond the Grid, as it's the same format? Well, let me tell you, Julie Wan, Tom Clarkson on Beyond the Grid would not read that out first and foremost. And he certainly wouldn't say Beyond the Grid sounds like this. Hi, this is Mario Andretti, and you are listening to Beyond the Grid. 
and F1 Nation sounds like this. Um, hang on, my screen is frozen. That, that'll do, that'll do. Okay. <laughs> See you next week, everyone. Close the bag. This could be the first and last time we're allowed to do the mailbag. Well, Sriniket has the last word. Yeah, Rosanna, you might like to hear this. It's interesting to note that the full radio message from Esteban on last week's show was, what was that? However, Rosanna only got him to say, what was that? Hence, she failed the challenge. Absolutely not. I'm sorry, I'm contesting this. At school, if you got, what, 60%, 65%, that was a pass. You, you passed your exam. Therefore, I got him to say more than 60% of the phrase. And therefore, I passed the challenge. Yeah, this is the school of hard knocks, though, Rosanna. It's 100% or nothing with us. And now, it's that time of the show. This is Challenge Rosanna. So for new listeners, here's how it works. Rosanna is set a challenge, which she volunteered for a couple of months ago when we were coming up with the idea for this podcast, and it increasingly is causing her stress and drama. It's time to spin the F1 wheel of fortune. And Rosanna, ah, a new challenge for you this week. You have to get your guest to sing a song. Well, Rosanna, who is your guest? My guest is Sky Sports F1's Johnny Herbert. So I feel like this could be possible. I'm not sure, is Johnny a singer? He's a laugh. He certainly is a laugh. Maybe, just maybe he'll have heard about Challenge Rosanna before and he'll play along. Will he sing along? Let me find out. Johnny Herbert, it's great to have you on F1 Nation. It's good to be here. Now, you look like, because I can see you, you look like you're taking lockdown in your stride. Uh, what have you been up to? What's been keeping you amused? I, I suppose the most important thing I've done, I've got a garage, double garage, and I didn't quite realise I am a hoarder. <laughs> <laughs> I've had so much rubbish in my garage and I can't really get in it. So I've actually cleaned it out. Pretty much 95%. So that's been the, been the main thing. The last couple of days I've been a, a brickie, well, a slabber. I don't know if there is such a word, a slabber. I've been re-putting the slabs down, putting concrete underneath them, re-land them, getting the old soft hammer, tapping that, mounting all those down. And grass, cutting lots of grass twice a week. So you're being very helpful around the house and garden. I think that's wonderful. Yeah, and and I have tried a little bit of fitness as well. So I do get on the bike for a, an hour or so as well. Try to do that every single day. How are you finding that? Initially, uh, very tough. Heart rate was about 175 most of the time. <laughs> now I'm getting it down to about 160, 155. So that's come down a long way. So get it, feeling better for it, though. There are a few questions I've had about lockdown and things I've had to get my head around, but I wasn't expecting to add to my list Johnny Herbert's start at the Bahrain Virtual Grand Prix. Trying to understand your manoeuvres there, Johnny. Uh, talk us through that. Let me try and understand my manoeuvre. I thought it was very, very obvious. There was a lot of chat prior to the race. It's going to be a lot of incidents and crashes and people running into each other. So I thought, well, I'll try and avoid that. So when I go into turn one and I see the start of some sort of comings together, which actually happened on the left-hand side, I think it was, into turn one, I turn right. Miraculously, I ended up being uh, in the lead. So I led the first sort of uh, eSports Grand Prix, which I thought was quite amazing. It didn't last very long, but at least I led it. It didn't. How do you find the whole eSports thing? <sighs> is it, there is a word for it. Um, 
frustrated. <laughs> it, it just seems to be hell on earth. I think I go into the or that event, just for example, I thought, well, actually, I'm not doing that bad. Then I started hearing rumors of times. Then I started getting a bit depressed about it. And I thought, okay, yeah, that's just people giving it the old uh, rabbit. So I waited for the event itself. And I have to say, I think it's the toughest thing I've probably ever done in my life. And I was very bad at it at the same time. So it was just frustrating because you know, and I've only seen this and you've probably seen the same, where you see some of the, you know, like Lando or, or, or Alex Albon, they've got proper simulators. Mine's one of those standard ones, you know, the ones they have in the... Oh, yeah. Get your excuses in. Cool. I'm getting them in quick. They're they're not the same. Well, better to get them out. And uh, (laughs) we can lay them out on the table so everyone knows where you stand. And I haven't been asked back, though, have I? I'm sure the uh, invitation has just got lost in the post, Johnny. You know how things are at the moment. Um, I've also been filling my time during lockdown looking at lovely old videos, going on YouTube. Um, and one I stumbled across was a sensational promotional video you did, Johnny, with uh, a rather wonderful pit crew. And it was the beginning that really got me, that Joe Cocker song. What was it? How did it start? <laughs> that one? I think it's that one. I can't remember. Yeah. Are there any words to it? Uh, I don't think so. I don't know the words. It was something it, like, you can leave, Was it? what is it? About leaving a hat on or something. It's da, one da, of the videos and promotional things that you sort of try and forget. And now you've brought it up. There is one word, that, well, I don't know if it was worse than that one. There was one with me and Mika Hackman sweating it up in a gym for one of our Japanese sponsors when we were at Lotus. So we do look a bit to like two wallies. <laughs> <laughs> is this a Salvo one you're talking about? Yes, it's that one. <laughs> I think, yeah. <laughs> Johnny of course we're linked up now through uh, software and of course we would normally be sitting on the French Riviera in the Monaco Harbour in beautiful sunshine but alas no Monaco Grand Prix this year Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about your Monaco memories and perhaps the 1996 race would be one that you would remember fondly yes it was it was again a brilliant result to be on the podium of all the three that finished the race uh, were all there. The only other one who pulled into the pits the lap before was my teammate, Heinz Howard Frenson, who knew he couldn't catch me for third. So he ended up going in the pits and there were only three finishes <laughs> of that race. But that was probably a classic. It's not the first time it's happened like that, but it was just one of those very difficult sort of races that you just had to keep yourself out of trouble. It was very tricky, with a little bit of dampness that was there, but it was just keeping yourself sort of within those narrow barriers and streets of Monaco and I was always sort of within the sort of the top eight I think there are thereabouts and then obviously then you just try to sort of weave yourself through the different strategies that were going on a couple of people like Damon I think his engine blew up from what I remember so there were just situations of you stay cool and that's all you need to do at Monaco be consistent yes but stay cool and then hopefully that result will come and luckily that day it did come and it's just a lovely place for me the qualifying of Monaco was the best it was unbelievably exciting to be in the cockpit because you know you're just pushing the limits you were trying to get the uh, the rims of the wheels to sort of glance on the uh, on the barrier just like to back for example and you could actually hear it sort of go down the barrier and then you knew you'd have used all the road around the track and I loved it because of that just fabulous can't wait to be back there when we do go racing in Monaco again 
plenty to look forward to and it's been absolutely lovely catching up with you i'll let you get back to mowing your lawn and and perhaps you'll uh, you'll find that song we'll come back to you again johnny i'm not going to remember it <laughs> <laughs> catch up with you soon rosanna i think you might have failed your first challenge i don't think there's much might there jakesy hey look we had a few <laughs> notes didn't we I think you hummed at him, didn't you? I hummed at him, hoping that he would join in at some point. But he was reluctant. He only gave me four or five notes. That's not what this game is about. What a glorious video, though. Glorious video. And it was lovely to hear Johnny, actually, just eulogising about Monaco, the challenge of Monaco. I mean, yes, he might have finished last in that race in 96 when he finished third, but he's still got a podium. He stood next to the Prince. If you've done that, that's that's bucket list stuff, isn't it? You really get a sense of what racing in Monaco means to these drivers, don't you? Sometimes these days, Monaco gets a, a bad rap for being a procession, but the drivers don't face anything like it, even at another street circuit all year long. And uh, I thought Johnny spoke really nicely on, on making the barriers hum as he went round. Less of the humming, please. More of the singing. Oh, Thanks to Rosanna, there'll be another challenge next week. Now, as well as celebrating the Monaco Grand Prix this week, we're going to reflect on the wonderful life of Nicky Lauda, who died during the build-up to this event last year. That's Nicky Lauda, the three-time world champion, the 25 Grand Prix wins, two at Monaco and the all-round Formula One legend. And to talk to us about him, we're joined by Morris Hamilton. Morris has reported on Formula One for more than 40 years, and he's just published a book about Nicky called Nicky Lauder, The Biography. And he's with us now. Morris, lovely to see you. I guess there's no book signings going on at the minute. Must be a bit frustrating. Yeah, it's a bit sad, really, because uh, normally you'd be doing that, be busy this week doing that. But uh, I guess we'll catch up. The main thing is that the book has got out there. For those people who can't remember Nicky's Formula One career, can you describe what sort of a driver he was and how good he was? Well, the thing about Nicky was, Tom, he was a man of many parts. So, you know, he's not remembered just as being a three-time world champion. The thing about Nicky is his, his story is about the accident at the Nürburgring in 76, the, the near-death experience he had there, given the last rights, coming back six weeks later to Monza, of all places, to drive a Ferrari, to finish fourth. That alone is something. But then to take the championship fight to James Hunt to continue that until the last round in, in Fuji, where he pulls out, which is a very brave decision to do, to come back in 77, to win the championship again, to quit motor racing, to come back, make a, a return, which of course is always a very dodgy thing to do, to win your third race of your comeback, to win the championship again in 84, to go away, start an airline, louder air, to deal with that horrendous crash in Thailand in 1991 when a louder 767 crashed and 223 souls on board were killed, to deal with that, take on Boeing uh, head to head, then go into motorsport management, Ferrari, not so successful. Jaguar, even less successful. Mercedes, really successful, as we know. I'm bringing Lewis, Lewis Hamilton in, all the rest of it. I mean, where do you start talking about this man? That is why I think he's so well remembered, because he's a man of so many parts. It was an amazing career, but equally all of the stuff post-Formula One wouldn't have happened without Nicky Lauda, the racing driver, I guess. No, that's absolutely right. The determined Nicky Lauda, the racing driver, Tom, that, that's the key thing here. Because when he first appeared, and I saw his first international Formula 2 race at Mallory Park, 
in March, on a cold, cold March day. Bloody hell, it was cold. And he was in his little 712M March, uh, funded by the bank, but money he'd borrowed. And he was no great shakes. You know, I have to say, in the first few years, he just thought, well, okay, so what? There's a rich kid, you know, he's got more. And he wasn't actually rich, but he borrowed the money. More money than sense. They're driving around in a nice Porsche 911 with a lovely girlfriend. You think, hello, what's going on here? But actually, what happened was his sheer application, his sheer self-belief got him into a march, which was a bit of a dog of a car that he had in 72, but then got himself into the BRM, which he put on its door handles and got him, and from that, by leading the Ferraris at Monaco, got the Ferrari drive, and now the rest is history because then he just applied himself. The Ferrari at that point were really in the poo. I mean, they were in a bad way. And he helped turn them around with Moro Fugiri. This guy with enormous self-belief, but didn't shout about it, just got on and did the business. Morris, how did his accident in 1976 change his attitude to the sport and his attitude to danger in particular? His attitude to danger always was pretty much the same. Uh, it, it was changing at that point, Alex. There's no question about that. Because uh, if you remember, just before the accident, he'd actually got round the Nürburgring in under seven minutes in the Ferrari, which he said afterwards was complete madness. He, he liked the Nürburgring when he was doing Formula V and all the rest of it because it was a challenge. And it's the sort of thing he could apply his mind to and, and work out every corner and go round and round and round it and get it right. That was typical of him. But then he began to realise, hang on a minute, this is a bit daft. And the accident then really permeated that thought. He thought, no, this really is stupid. And he came back uh, from that. And people who knew him, I didn't know him before the accident, but those who did and who I spoke to for the book said that there were two Nicky Lauders. There was the one before who was slightly arrogant and quite precise and just didn't say a lot and had to make it in the computer. And there was this other Nicky Lauder afterwards who was a more rounded guy who had... Uh, as you would imagine, his, his value of life had changed. His life, not just life, his life had changed enormously. And he just saw things differently. And he was a lot more relaxed and he enjoyed himself a lot more. So, uh, but his attitude to safety, I think, was changing at that point. But it clearly, what he knew was that he, of all people, could talk about safety. Because having come back from that accident, who was not going to listen to this man when he says, this is dangerous, we can't go racing here? because his, his brave comeback in itself gave him the credibility to stand up and speak about it. Morris, can you pick his best race? There were so many, 25 Grand Prix wins. Uh, I'd like to pick two, Tom. One was uh, the South African Grand Prix in 1977, which happened to be, so it's a bit of a personal choice, this, because it happened to be my first race as a professional journalist. And he came back and he won that race. So it was his first victory after the accident in 76. It meant a hell of a lot to him. He, he considered it to be one of his most satisfying wins that he, that he had of the 25. He proved that he could do it, which is a lot of the, the way he worked. He wanted to prove, A, he could drive the car afterwards, after the accident, B, he could win races. He'd done that. But he had to nurse the car across the line. Typical Lauda. There'd been that, the downside of that weekend was, unfortunately, poor Tom Price was killed. Part of the fire extinguisher that hit poor Tom uh, knocked the rule bar, the rule of a bar uh, behind his head off, and that had punctured the radiator on Lauda's Ferrari. But he didn't know, he didn't see it at the time. He'd run over it, didn't see it. And he had to nurse the car to the finish 
in the end, I think it was something like 12 litres of water that should have been there. There, should have, there was only four litres left. The old warning light was on. He couldn't brake hard because the warning light would come on. And he nursed the car across the line. And as it crossed the line, it blew up. That was uh, an important one. But the other one I enjoyed a lot was his comeback. The first one of his comeback, 1982 Long Beach race. Fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Street race, really difficult. Got to think about it. And he wasn't leading from the start. He had to, he had to outfox various people to get there. And then afterwards, in the press conference, he just came in and he just owned it because we didn't have the structured press conferences that we have now. Uh, he had to come down to the conference centre and the, and the guy, the MC, was trying to introduce him and all the flowery language and all the rest of it. And Nicky just walked up and took the microphone off him and said, any questions? <laughs> and off we went. I and can so just, imagine him doing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and eating an apple and, and, ch- and chatting away. Fantastic. Now, the theme of this week's show is Monaco. And there's one race I wanted to ask you about was Monaco 78. Now, Nicky finished second, but he had a puncher mid-race. And I think he even went faster than his qualifying time on his comeback. Now, do you remember that one? Uh, it was won by Patrick Depaye, wasn't it? And I, I remember that race because I had the most stinking hangover. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's Monaco. I, I, I'm ashamed to <laughs> now say. Now we're talking Monaco. I, I, I'm ashamed to say it was, I mean, horrendous. I don't know, I don't know what we were doing the previous night. And when it finished, Ken Tyrrell's walking down the pit lane with a cup, happy as Larry, and he's one of them, and he says, my God, he said, what's happened to you? <laughs> I looked so ill. <laughs> so, I'm Brilliant. sorry, but my memory of 78 is... That's fantastic. That. <laughs> That's As fun. Jensen said in 2009, Monaco, baby. Yeah. <laughs> I think the one I enjoyed was 82. What a race. That was just when it, all the changes of hands, the leads and everything. When Nicky was non-executive chairman of Mercedes, he formed a, a close connection with Lewis Hamilton, something that Lewis spoke about last year. Were you surprised by that or did you see a, a meeting of the two characters there? No, I'm very surprised by it. Um, I, I just didn't see that coming at all. You know, For all the reasons I think we know Alex, in that he's safely ensconced at, at McLaren. That's the team where he grew up. He knew everybody. He'd won a championship. They were looking good. They were set to win more championships. I think the fact that he went to Mercedes sums up everything about Lewis's nose and, and ability to think outside the box, but also uh, Nicky Lauder's reputation. From what Nicky told me for the book when we talked about it, he'd said to, to Lewis, look, I understand why you don't want to move. He said, uh, you can win more championships with, with McLaren, but why do you want to do that? To look at me, I won a championship with Ferrari and I won one with McLaren. Think how much better that would be. And, and he said, I told him, trust me, Mercedes, although they're not looking great now, they are going to be good. Trust me, it'll be better for you if you do that. And Lewis cleverly thought, yeah, you're right, actually. But probably not many people would have been able to tell him that. You know, it took Nicky Lauder to say something like that for Lewis to go, yeah, you're right. So that's why I think it all happened. But yeah, you're right. I didn't see it coming at all. Do you think they make racing drivers like Nicky Lauder these days? No. <laughs> I mean, Tommy was a one-off, wasn't he? And the, the thing that we all loved as, as journalists was just talking to him. I mean, it was such a treat because you would just get such a clear answer. You know, how many times have we been in the paddock, right? And, and something breaks, or some story breaks. Somebody goes, oh, my God, this is the big thing. This is the buzz. And you're hearing this, you're hearing that. And somebody says, yeah, but what about this? And what about that? And in the end, your head's spinning. So what do you do? You go and find Nicky. Nicky, what do you think about so-and-so? It's very simple. 
bang, 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 and you go, you're right. And you can just cut <laughs> through all the crap and take you right there. I mean, he was such a delight, wonderful guy to talk to. Well, Maurice, it's been wonderful to talk to you as well. Thank you very much for your thoughts on Nicky. Good luck with the book. So our thanks to Morris Hamilton as well, to David Coulthard, to Johnny Herbert and to Rosanna Tennant. We would love it if you subscribed to the podcast and even better, leave us a review, which, as you've already heard, could feature in the mailbag. We leave you now with Mercedes tribute to the great man himself, Nicky Lauda. The greatest sign from Nicky was, you know, if he did the job, he would take off his hat. If anyone's ever told you that you shouldn't meet your childhood heroes, I would say there's at least a chance that the person giving that advice had at some point worked in F1. Because over the years, I've been lucky enough to meet a few of my boyhood heroes, the drivers of the 70s and 80s in F1. And I can tell you that it hasn't always been the happy experience that you might have wished for. Meeting Nicky is a notable and very happy exception to this rule because meeting Nicky the man was every bit as good and in many ways much better than the Nicky of my boyhood myth. Nicky inspired me with his personality, with his resilient approach to things, and also, in a way, to the way he was able to reinvent himself. He became a racing driver, uh, created an airline, back to racing driver, back to an airline, and then heading the supervisory board of Mercedes Grand Prix. One of those great people, a real sense of warmth and humility um, and endurance, but also that real focus on motorsport. Nicky's someone whose life was huge, bold, sweeping and brave and big enough to fill 10 autobiographies. And yet he didn't spend any time talking either about himself or reliving past glories. He was about looking ahead. He was much, much more interested in engaging with us about the challenges the team faced and the opportunities that lay ahead of us. Nicky inspired me just by giving the support always when I needed it. You know, he, he's a racing driver himself. He, he knows exactly when a driver needs the support and, uh, you know, that extra positive boost. I wish he would be around because we all miss him so much as a friend. Uh, I, but I lost also my business partner, my travel companion, my sounding board, my coach. And uh, we all in the team miss him tremendously. Such a positive, funny, entertaining guy. He always had the greatest stories to tell. You know, naturally was just, and he was a natural born racer, just was always thinking about how we can improve. You know, I got to see him in Switzerland not too long before he passed, and he was still thinking about racing. All he could think of is, is geez, how do I get back to racing?